Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North on this Tuesday, November 28th, just after 1 o'clock Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That makes it 11 a.m. Mountain Time and Noon Central Time. I feel like I have to do them all now. So 2 o'clock Atlantic and uh, for you crazy Newfoundlanders with the half-hour time zone, hope you are enjoying 2.30 p.m. But I think Labrador is on Atlantic Time, right? Labrador like is uh, they, they're, they're very time zone supremacist with the rest of Newfoundland. But it is good to have you aboard the program here. We are are going to be speaking in a little bit about the National Citizens Inquiry, a body that was quite monumental in Canada in terms of its size and scope. And this NCI has just released today its final report, which uh, came out, I think it was about 1130 this morning. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I can take a quick skim through it before I go on air. And then I opened it up and it was uh, five. Uh, let me get the right uh, answer here. 5,324 pages. Now, I can read pretty quickly, but I won't tell you I've read the entire report. I did read the preamble. I read through many of the recommendations, and I have some preliminary thoughts on the final report, which I'll share very shortly. And we'll also be talking to Ches Crosby, who is the administrator of the NCI. Now, right now, he's actually, I, I have on my screen open the National Citizens Inquiry press conference feed, and I see Ches Crosby is still on it. So uh, he may not be able to join us right away, but we'll get to him in a couple of moments when he's able to pop off that call and join us over here. And we are very grateful. This is the fun of doing things live here on the Andrew Lawton Show. But before I get into that, I have to share, because everyone's sharing this photo around now. Uh, this was snapped of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, I believe in Toronto. I might be wrong about the city, but you can see him carrying around a bag there. And if you look really, really closely, you see the bag says Versace on it. Uh, Versace. So, what's that? I'm told it's Versace. Vers oh, Versace. The designer Versace. This working man of the people, the leader of the uh, the leader of the socialist New Democrat Party, is walking around with a an imported designer bag which kind of looks like the crappy bags you get at the grocery store for a dollar because plastic bags have been outlawed. That That's what's happening here. Oh my goodness. Now, I don't actually know the price of this Versace, sorry, Versace, Versace. Uh, I, don't worry, I know it. I'm not that much of a bore. I don't know the price of the Versace bag that uh, Jagmeet Singh has. There was an article about it in the Toronto Sun. Oftentimes when, uh, you know, the leaders are spotted with designer clothing or watches, people will spot it out and be like, oh, well, that was this model, which was in this catalog and it uh, retailed for this price. So I don't know what the bag goes for. Uh, Sean, you're more stylish than I am. I, if you know how much the bag is, let me know in the uh, chat here that we have going on. And, and by the way, I'm not one of these wealth shaming types. I'm not one of these people that looks at someone and says, oh, I don't like that they have a nice car. I don't like that they dress nicely. I don't like that they have a nice watch. I say, absolutely, congratulations. You've worked for it. You've earned it. I mean, in the case of Jagmeet Singh, well, you bought it at least. I don't know if you working is the, the appropriate way of looking at it. But what's interesting here is that he's the guy who is leading this crusade against the so-called rich. The rich need to pay their fair share. No one needs to be a billionaire. It's all about evil profits and all of that stuff. Uh, here we go. Sean to the rescue. Versace tote bags start at around $1,000 and can go up to 2000 
but his is not currently available. So uh, he may have gotten it previously, but that's the price of a Versace tote bag, $1,000 to $2,000. Now I've got like a nice little laptop bag here, which my, my wife got me and I don't think she paid, no, I don't think she paid $1,000 for it. But the thing that I will say about Jagmeet Singh is that if you're going to be the guy leading the crusade against the so-called rich, maybe you just cool it on walking around with all of the designer swag. That seems to be a little bit of free advice that I can give my gift to you, courtesy of The Andrew Lawton Show. Uh, this is a fun one. We'll do all the parties today. Liberal MP Ken Hardy was responding to the news. Now, yesterday on the show, I was talking about that horrific a car crash in Niagara Falls last week, which initially was reported as terrorism. And I understand why people thought that. There was an explosion. It took place at a border crossing. I understand why people went to that, but it ended up just being a tragedy that we don't quite understand the motivation behind. Nevertheless, it is always important, as I said, to not let your politics get in the way of a narrative. Or to not let a narrative get in the way of your politics. No, to not let either get in the way of either. But you should not let yourself politicize tragedy. That's the point that I've made. And when people get into trouble is when they start assuming that something is going on and they want to believe it, they want to say it's true, but it's really not. And they try to shoehorn it into their narrative. Well, this is a bit of a setup to what's happened in Winnipeg. Now, I don't know the details of it. I don't know Winnipeg all that well. But there was a very tragic shooting that took place that claimed four lives and sent someone to the hospital with serious industries. Now, injuries. Now, police say the victims were known to them. Uh, it looks like this is the kind of thing that was probably targeted, but we don't know. Nevertheless, it was a shooting. People died. It was tragic. Why can't we just say that? Well, here's what Liberal MP Ken Hardy said. Beyond troubling to see another mass shooting in Canada, now in Winnipeg, and we've lost so many police officers, might it be the antisocial burn everything down far right attitude we're seeing creeping in from the US and the quote unquote creep on the Canadian side? Pierre Polyev? I did like the exaggerated question mark because Ken Hardy in his post on X there is making it a question. I, I'm not saying it's Pierre Polyev. I'm just saying it might be Pierre Polyev. It might be the far right. So I don't know how you draw a line between conservative leader Pierre Polyev and a shooting in Winnipeg. I'm I'm trying to draw the line. I like I'm trying. It's like do you do you go up and like that's like a line that would be the most inconvenient expedition in the history of travel and exploration to try to get from Pierre Polyev to shooting in Winnipeg. But to a liberal MP so consumed by hatred of the conservatives, hatred of the right, everything is far right. Everything is Pierre Polyev's. It's, well, Ken Hardy thinks he is a hammer and he thinks the far right is a nail and he's just going to keep whacking away at it regardless of whether it's there or not. And this is, I think, something we're going to see more of from the liberals. Now, to go back to the NDP for a moment, the reason the liberals are in power is because the NDP are propping them up. They don't have a majority government. It's been the NDP, not the Bloc Québécois, not the Conservatives that have been giving the liberals their support, the supply and confidence in the legislature or the <coughs> coalition. Excuse me. Sorry. <coughs> coalition. I got to take something for that. 
But it's the NDP support that's doing it. Now, take a look at this poll here. I actually, yeah, I think we have the federal poll results. I don't normally do polling, but this one's kind of interesting. The conservatives have 41%. Now, that's clear-cut majority territory. Liberals in second with 22%, tied with the liberals at 22%. If the NDP can go just a little bit higher there, we're looking at an NDP that will be like in 2011 in official opposition status, which for the Canadian NDP is pretty much as good as it's going to get. I kind of enjoyed this post from the anonymous House of Commons staffer, on X, which I, I want to share with you. I don't know if they're actually a House of Commons staffer, but that's the name. Stornaway, the official residence of the leader of the official opposition. Jagmeet Singh, this could be yours. You'd have matched Jack Layton. Your legacy will shine. Young socialists will chant your name in reverence. Just pull the plug. Let's dance. Well, Jagmeet Singh loves the dancing. I can actually picture him if we, you know, put that photo back up for a moment there, Sean, because I can kind of picture if I look over, imagine him just strolling along in front of that house, carrying his Versace bag. He turns right to go into the door and you just see that slight glint as the sun reflects off his Rolex watch. He turns around and smiles. It's a sullen smile, but a smile nonetheless, because he knows this is as good as it's going to get. You can never hope to achieve better as the NDP right now under Jagmeet Singh than being Canada's official opposition. So you might as well just roll with it. You're not going to win. Just go along, carry on, and we could do it. But as we've heard time and time again, in fact, the NDP are bending over backwards to let the Liberals violate one of the only things they had to do to win the support and confidence, the supply and confidence from the NDP, which was deliver a pharmacare bill by the end of 2023. So even that they aren't going to do. So, well, with that out of the way, I want to talk about this report from the National Citizens Inquiry. Now, I, I want to say a couple of things up front on this. We were often criticized at True North for not covering the NCI enough. We, we certainly reported on it. We covered it. I played clips from some of the hearings, but we didn't sit there in the meetings. We didn't travel across the country and attend the various hearings. And there were two reasons for this. If I speak just from my own perspective on the Andrew Lawton show, one is that it's a resource issue. This was a long running project. It was a project that took place in multiple cities across the country. And it was also a project that was available online. So a lot of the people that were really interested were watching it directly and didn't need the intermediary of the news. So that, that's part of it. The bigger reason, I think, is the following. Why the NCI was important, why the National Citizens Inquiry mattered to me, was that it was giving a voice to people who, in the official discourse, didn't have a voice and hadn't been listened to, and had been ignored by the media, by governments, by the establishment. I viewed True North as being outside of that. We had given these people voices. We had spoken to these people. These were a lot of the experts we had listened to. So by the time the NCI hearings came around, a lot of the people who were speaking were folks who had already been on this show, who had already been written about in True North. And it's not to say that they there wasn't value in what they had to share. It was that for us, it wasn't groundbreaking because we had been there and we had been covering all these things. I mean, I literally wrote the book about the Freedom Convoy, which was a response to a lot of these very COVID measures. So at the same time, I think it also is important. And I think that it's impressive what they've pulled off here because this was not an inexpensive undertaking. They had to bring in a lot of money to do this. They had staff, they had legal counsel, they had commissioners, people that have very impressive resumes. And they've worked for the better part of 
nine, 10 months from hearings to inquiry, to writing, to now publication, to publish this report, which came out this morning and has, as I mentioned, five, is it 5,234 pages? I think, yeah. No, sorry, 5,324. 5,324 pages. That's how many uh, pages there are in this. A lot of that is transcript from testimony, but even so, no one can say this is not thorough and meticulously researched. And when you read through it, a lot of the recommendations are things that are tremendously important. Things like the protection of civil liberties, not closing schools. That's a, a very important one. The presumption of innocence, the rule of law, things that are already supposed to be enshrined in law, but as we saw in practice, really do not have major protections. So that's a big part of what this thing has done. One section here that I'll read, which I think a lot of you will appreciate, churches do not require the permission of governments to open or close. However, when churches decided to respond favorably to the government's call two weeks to flatten the curve, those same churches must also have had decision-making authority to reopen when projected COVID death and illness numbers don't come to fruition. And I think that's a very important part of this discussion is that Governments deferred to individual organizations and individual people and their ability to make decisions only when people made decisions that the government wanted. And when people didn't make those decisions voluntarily, that's when the involuntary measures came in. Vaccination was a great example of this. Everyone get vaccinated, get vaccinated. It's available to you. We'll promote it. We'll educate you. We'll run ads. And then when not enough people get it, that's when the mandates come in. That's when the vaccine passports come in. And that's when all these restrictions come in. So basically, you never really had a choice. At the beginning, it was the illusion of choice, which is great for you know the people that make that choice and are happy with that choice. But then it becomes no longer that. And that was, I think, one of the most fundamental distinctions here. And when you read through this, there are other measures, like schools should not be closed for periods of time exceeding one week in duration. You'll have to excuse me for a moment. I have to cough and I'm, I don't want to blow out your eardrum. So I'm going to mute for a moment. Thank you. I like choked on something before the show started. And I think it would like it had been working its way down and then must have started coming back up. But uh, nevertheless, the joys of being live on the air here. So that was the, the school should not be closed for a period of time exceeding one week in duration. That was a very important one. And I will point out that that was very similar to what Preston Manning in his Alberta report had ultimately concluded, which was that people should view school closures as an absolute last resort and only for as narrowly a time as possible. Now, they didn't put a time frame on it. The National Citizens Inquiry report did. They put a time frame as one week. Uh, what else do we have here? Enhanced mental health services. Yes, there has not been, to my knowledge, any real recognition by government of the harms of lockdown on mental health. Uh, now, in many cases, the mental health harms people had as a result of COVID lockdowns were far worse than the physical consequences they would have had from COVID itself. I think this is well known to a lot of people but has not been regarded well by people in positions to do anything about it. So uh, looking at some of the other measures that have been recommended here, and again, I, I'd encourage you to read the report yourself, but uh, they, they take a, a very firm position that they don't embrace what's called pandemic amnesty, which is this idea 
that we've heard championed often from people who were big fans of lockdowns that, well, we should just all move on. We should just say, well, yeah, yeah, it sucks and things happened and uh, maybe we said or did some things we regret, but we should just move on and move forward and never think of it again. And one, I'll read one passage from the report here. They say it is not an option to take a business-as-usual posture and simply carry on as if nothing happened. Institutions must recognize and publicly admit their culpability in what was perpetrated on Canadians, and if appropriate, must face criminal and civil penalties for their actions. Now, it does not explicitly call for jailing politicians and public health officials, but that's a line I'm, I'm very curious about. Now, that's what the commissioners say, that they believe there should be criminal and civil penalties. Now, that to me is almost like a separate line from this idea that we shouldn't just have business as usual. But this is something I've heard increasingly from folks, that they don't want to just move on from this. And I'd say it's unhealthy to live in the past and dwell in the past and just never leave the COVID era. But it's similarly unhealthy for a society for a society to just move on as though nothing had happened and allow pretty egregious and heinous violations of civil liberties to stand without challenge. And one of the ways that courts have allowed this to happen is with what's called the doctrine of mootness, where when legal challenges are brought forward, whether it's on the Emergencies Act or the air travel vaccine mandate, whatever the case is, uh, people will argue, the government will argue, well, it's moot now, the vaccine mandate's gone. And the court will say, well, yeah, you know, we have a backlog of cases. We don't have time to do it all. There's no mandate, so this is moot. Just you know, bring it up if it comes up again, and we'll we'll go back to square one. And the problem with that is that mootness allows the government to avoid scrutiny. It allows the government to evade scrutiny. So this is where I would be very, very pleased to see one of these recommendations embraced and adopted, which is to limit the scope of mootness doctrine and to make it so that a lot of these things cannot evade scrutiny by the courts. Although, again, I mean, as we've seen, when the courts have scrutinized these cases, their decisions have not generally been the most favorable, which is a big part of the problem also, is that we need to take a look at the judiciary and its role in all of this and how a lot of judges were uninterested in hearing all the evidence and all the testimony when it came to these measures and came to these restrictions. So these are among the things that have stood out to me. I, I'm going to take a, a closer look at it. I'm actually flying out to Alberta so uh, th this week. So I'll be able to you know, dig into it a little bit more on the flight, get some nice reading there. But the reason I think this is important is that it sets a standard for a discussion that should exist in society. And I, I heard from the uh, lead counsel for the NCI, Sean Buckley, that they sent out uh, summons and requests to a number of public officials. I forget how many. But what they said is that not a single one respond. Well, not a single one answered with a favorable response. Most of them didn't respond at all. So no one agreed to testify under oath before this commission who didn't want to be there, who wasn't a voluntary figure. And obviously it didn't have subpoenaing power. But no public officials were prepared to withstand that. Now, you may say, okay, well, why would they? It doesn't have any official status. It's a citizen-led inquiry. But I'd say putting the voices of citizens front and center is exactly what Canada and much of the world was missing over the last three years. And hearing testimony that was very citizen-focused and citizen-oriented was precisely what this discussion needed. 
So yes, the fact that Alberta and uh, Danielle Smith had their inquiry is good, but it was not meant to be as broad and holistic as this one. Chess Crosby is an institution in Newfoundland politics and was the administrator for the National Citizens Inquiry, and is that, I should say. He joins me now. Chess, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. You and I met in an elevator in Calgary just before the dinner that's held annually uh, to benefit the Canadian Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. I only had time to introduce myself, uh, but not to give you an elevator speech, so maybe I get that chance now. Yes, you certainly do, and I, I know you were uh, at that hearing uh, and the press conference a few moments ago. I'm glad you were able to, to peel away and, and join us. One of the things that jumped out at me in, in the report, and I, again, I haven't read through the whole 5,300 pages yet, is a call to have criminal and civil penalties for institutions that uh, the commissioners say were culpable in perpetrating uh, these things on Canadians. Now, what are we talking about here? I mean, who are we talking about there? We're talking about people at various levels of responsibility. As a lawyer, it won't surprise you that um, my outlook is the more civil lawsuits, the better. But also, uh, eventually, this country is going to have to get to the stage where criminal proceedings are taken. Usually, those proceedings uh, begin with people at lower levels of responsibility, and then you you have people uh, becoming whistleblowers, you have people doing plea bargainings, and they give the receipts on people higher up the chain of command, and generally you work your way up that way. But we very much do need criminal prosecutions. What sorts of crimes am I thinking of here? This is not an exhaustive list, but criminal negligence causing death might be one. <laughs> Uh, hate crimes could be another. And we have a very uh, interesting and powerful uh, statute in this country called the uh, War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanities Act. It was uh, borrowed from international law um, and uh, it's uh, sitting on the books of Parliament since, uh, since the year 2000. Now, one little problem with that is that it requires the permission of the Attorney General of Canada before a prosecution can be brought. Uh, I don't think you can expect to get that permission as long as the people uh, are in office who are in office right now at this moment in Ottawa, that's the Trudeau Liberals, uh, but eventually uh, that permission will be granted should somebody want to seek it. And I happen to know of a group of uh, retired detectives who are hard at work on this now. So do, I take from your answer that you don't buy into the idea that this was a political problem that has to be responded to in a, a political fashion, as though basically this was just bad policy and the antidote to bad policy is to vote out the politicians who imposed it. Well, that's certainly part of the antidote. Uh, they got to be voted out. Uh, the tipping point is being reached, not just in Canada, but elsewhere. And that's, you can visualize that sort of like a dump truck load of sand. And at a certain point in the tilt of the dump truck load, uh, some of the sand begins to run out and then there's a cascade of more sand and then the entire load comes out all at once. Well, we're coming up to that point where things that were unthinkable even months ago are going to be very thinkable and in fact will be done. And I'm talking about 
you know, I'm talking about holding people criminally accountable, as we were just discussing. So let's talk about the relevance of this report, because obviously it was quite monumental that you had uh, this citizen-led initiative with no public funding and no official status, no royal charter that existed and that carried on and that, uh, you know, took obviously significant effort and, and financial resources to have happen. At the end of it, you have this 5,000-page report, but the process was boycotted by the people who were in positions to uh, make these decisions that were ultimately rebuked and rejected by this report. I, I think it stands to reason those people will not acknowledge, or if they do, will not heed the recommendations. So at the risk of sounding kind of glib about this, what's the point of it all? Well, you know, these the, the whole process of accountability always takes time. We've been through a species of madness to, uh, there are various terms for it. Maybe it's mass hypnosis, maybe it's mass formation, it's mass something, mass fear. Uh, the commissioners described it as a terror. In other words, the authorities perpetrated a state of fear quite deliberately and knowingly. And uh, you could use the term a psychological operation, a psyops on the civilian population of Canada. It takes a while to get over that and to begin to see life in a realistic way. And you probably agree with me that topics that you couldn't have talked about even six months ago in social situations now are no longer taboo. You can speak about them. This will continue to change and change in a proper and right direction. There will be accountability, and without accountability, there can't be reconciliation. And God needs, God knows that this country, Canada, needs reconciliation. Well, that was, I mean, when, whenever we've talked about this in the Indigenous context, we're always told that you need truth before you can have reconciliation, hence the name of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And, and in this context, you can't have an honest discussion about what happened without dealing with the facts. And even still, some of the basic fundamental facts are in dispute by some of the so-called experts on whom the government relied and a lot of the other experts that the government rejected. And, you know, I've often had this challenge as a journalist. You know, how can I sort of adjudicate between two people wearing lab coats with letters after their names? But I think the government was very quick to shut down anyone with a heterodox view. And that's part of the reason we got into these problems. And they really just entrenched that the longer this went on, rather than having any basic semblance of humility. Well, there's a famous doctor, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who you're probably familiar with, and he writes a substack. He calls it Courageous Discourse. And I like that term because there are two things that all of us need. We need courage, but we also need the ability to engage in discourse and to learn from people with different viewpoints. And uh, so, what we've seen lacking in the authorities who have instituted the measures that we're all so uh, familiar with from the last several years, the repressive, repressive measures, is they wouldn't turn up at the inquiry, uh, although they were invited, and explain themselves. What are they afraid of? They obviously, they obviously have something to uh, be afraid of. Uh, they know they've got things to defend that they can't defend very well. 
and they're not willing to engage in discourse. And as long as people aren't willing to engage in discourse, and I'd actually include criminal proceedings as a form of discourse as well, then we're going to have problems and we're not going to have reconciliation. Uh, we, we lost your video there for a moment. Uh, you're frozen, but we can still hear you. So I'll, I'll ask you one final question here, Chess. What would you like Canadians to do with this? Because th there is, I think, a call to action whenever something like this is published for Canadians to read it and understand and review. What would you like, if you can assign the country homework here, and certainly this audience, what do you think Canadians should take from this and do with this document? Well, thanks, Andrew. I, I think that people should um, have a look at it. They should turn it over in their minds. There are going to be a spectrum of people, some who, you know, accept everything that's being said and are totally on the same page with the commissioners. There will be some who, uh, who are somewhere in between, and there are others who will be more, more resistant. Just have a look at Yeah. Oh, I feel we've uh, now we we've lost you, the uh, the audio here. You you cut out there, uh, Chaz. I oh, you seem go, to be moving again. If you can uh, try speaking, um, I think we have you back. No, unfortunately, it's uh, it's cutting off now. We're we're having a connection issue here, but I I do appreciate that we had most of the interview uh, with, with functional technology, and we'll we'll have to get you back uh, in a bit more detail. Uh, Chess Crosby, the administrator for the National Citizens Inquiry, and also I should say the son of the late John Crosby, who once told me a joke that was so hilarious, but I could never ever repeat it on this platform, which is I think very much a uh, anyone who's ever heard a joke from John Crosby probably uh, is not surprised by that. But uh, my thanks to Chess Crosby for coming on and to the NCI for its work on this. I will uh, take a, a closer look at the report, as I said. And if there's anything more to report back to you, I will do so. That does it for me for today. We will be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.